following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity to gather with the saints and to study your word together. Lord, it is a privilege to feast and to be fed and nourished by your word and by the Spirit so that we may walk in faithfulness and obedience to your will. And so to that end, Lord, I pray that our study now would be both encouraging and edifying, that we would be equipped by your Spirit to both understand and possess the wisdom in this book and be empowered with the courage and conviction to live in light of the the blessed way it points us to live. We pray, God, for those who are not here because they're sick or caring for sick family members. We pray for those who are gone traveling, that they would be encouraged. Lord, we pray for those who are not here because of sin or neglect. God, would you both rebuke them and draw them to yourself and restore them to the fellowship of the church. And God, we pray ultimately for those who would hear this morning, not only in this church, but in all other churches that are gathered on this Lord's Day, the truth of the gospel, who may not have heard it before, that they would come to believe it savingly by your grace, be quickened in their heart, transformed as a new creation for your glory. All in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, there are certain songs that can instantly teleport us to a certain time or season in our life full of nostalgia or memories or give us feelings or thoughts of particular people. And songs uniquely have the ability to do this, don't they? Maybe there's a simpler time in your life before the chaos of family and work where you were just a young 20-something driving carefree with your windows down listening to your favorite music. Maybe you remember a time in your life where you were growing in the Lord, steadfast in the Lord, and there's a hymn or a song that really brings up the kind of emotions and the intimacy with which you once walked but now feel maybe a little distant from. Or maybe there's songs you hear that remind you of a loved one that have passed or perhaps a relationship that didn't last. Well, songs and their cousin poems really have the ability to tap into the human heart in a way that really no other kinds of words are able to do. Not simply conversations, though those are important. Not just like sermons, though those themselves are important. But God had so ordered the world and created us and the universe to allow music, to allow poetry, to allow the art of words to penetrate to our very soul. And so for that reason, many of us have favorite songs. We have favorite artists that speak to us in ways that really very few people can. And we can and should praise God for that. That the poets and the songwriters of our age have been gifted by God to elicit emotion. And emotions themselves can be good and God-honoring. So we recognize that God has given us tools to think through 
and to process our own emotions. So we often listen to songs or read poems to correspond to how we're feeling. If it's a nice summer day, we'll roll down the windows and listen to something a little bit more upbeat. We're in a good mood. Or maybe we've just had a fight or we've had something difficult, some bad news break it to us, and now we're listening to something a little bit more somber that helps us process and at least get through those negative feelings. Or maybe sometimes it's just happenstance and a song comes on the radio or someone sends you a song and you listen to that or read that somewhere and you're struck by the, the poetic elegance or the unique way that it frames a word or a feeling that you've been wrestling with for a time but haven't quite found the way to express. Well, obviously, that's an example of exactly what's happening within the Psalms. As you may know, Psalms themselves are songs. They're, they're poetry. It's really their prayer written in poetic and song form to be sung and to be enjoyed as if you and I were enjoying a song now on the radio. Imagine, if you will, maybe the 7th century B.C. You're, uh, you know, an ancient Israelite, and for this experiment, um, radio exists. And so you tune in to your favorite AM radio station. AM, of course, being, um, you know, ancient Mediterranean, uh, if you like. And the DJ gets on. It's DJ Ezra. And he says, now the latest cut from your favorite artist, King David. And it's a, it's a banger. It's so good. And it hits you right in the heart. That's how the Psalms operated within ancient Israel. Now, they had their liturgical function. Don't get me wrong. They sang the songs together when they came to worship. They were used at certain points in that worship. But many of the Psalms, if you're familiar with them, are individual expressing a relationship to God that is often and best used in private prayer. So they're both songs and poems that help individuals process emotion in their relationship with God and the nation as a whole come together and worship God together. So the Psalms are songs and poems that are written for the people of God that helps them process and navigate their relationship with God. And like every good song or poem, the Psalms are going to have a structure and a certain composition other literary elements you could discern and contrast, like rhythm, they have themes, there's arguments, there's unique structures within them. We could put it like this, the Psalms are God's word to man, even when they are man's word to God. They are sung and written by man's perspective to God, but because they're in our Bible, we recognize that these are, in fact, ultimately God's words to man. In other words, they are God's words to man for man. David was both a musician and a prophet. What he wrote to sing and pray, even if it was a public adoration or private adoration, was meant by God to be preserved for us. They are God's words for man, the whole man to be sung and enjoyed and used. And so God gives us the psalms, which has been said that there's a psalm for every sigh of the human soul. It ranges the whole of human emotion and experience, all the highs and the lows. And they give us this in order that we might hear from God in the midst of those experiences. So you can read a psalm that speaks to the difficulties of your circumstances, a song 
that speaks to the difficulty of persecution or lament or complaint or waiting on the Lord. But there's also psalms that are victorious and conquering. There's psalms that look to the past and both to the future as well. And the songs here within the Psalter are meant to lead us into a relationship with God in the midst of those experiences. Therefore, the Psalms and the whole Psalter itself is meant to be instructional to the Christian life. Or in the words of the psalmist, we're to listen for the voice of God, through the Spirit of God, who sings to us the Word of God. Ultimately, the Psalms are going to teach us and point us to Christ which we'll see in just a few moments. So the Psalms, this is, this is really the, the, the point that I want to leave with you this morning, here and up front, that the Psalms are an important song book for God's people. And in the life of the Christian, the Psalms give us a glimpse into what it means to walk in intimacy with the Lord. That being a Christian is not just about believing the right things, It's about a real, genuine, and meaningful relationship which serves Christ as king. And the intimacy of that relationship is not one that is cold or distant, but one is near and is vital to us. So the psalm book has been called Israel's own hymn book. It's a reminder of the nearness of God to his people, God's concern for his people. He's not some judge far off expecting obedience without any personal relationship. It's a reminder of the nearness and concern of God for his people. It's about his faithfulness to bring about his covenant promises. And so, just like Israel, the church today is commanded to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, as Colossians tells us. This is the aim, then, of the book of Psalms for the Christian life. And as you study the Psalms in your own walk, know that the Psalms are there to give your emotions an instinct of godliness. Right now, many of you may have difficulty mastering and controlling your own emotions. This is quite common for a lot of us. Even before Christ, our emotions serve... If we're angry, we lash out. If we're sad, we get depressed. If we're happy, we jump. All of those things can be all well and good. But the Bible gives us instruction for how those emotions must be used and directed to glorify God. If you're in a covenant relationship with God who has given you emotions and has given you the life circumstances you have that you must process those emotions in relationship to your your covenant with God, then the Psalms are there to guide you. They are to give your emotions this instinct of godliness. And by that I mean that they're there to help you emote in a biblical manner. To express your feelings in a way that is shaped by God's word. Now some of us tend to be a little bit more emotional and expressive already. And to that end, the Psalms help sharpen the language in the way that you express your emotions. Or if you're on the other end of the spectrum with me, You have a hard time expressing or emoting in any kind of real meaningful way. Again, the Psalms help us give language to what we have a difficulty articulating. 
So the Psalms are there to give you an emotion, an articulation of God's own words with an instinct of godliness so that you can express and navigate your emotions biblically. In other words, they give a gospel shape to our feelings. Joy, sorrow, fear, anger, grief, desire, hope, dismay, brokenness, on and on and on. All of these human experiences and emotions can be filtered and understood through the gospel, through the Psalms, to help us walk more faithfully. We have a great gift in the book of Psalms. And so no wonder that the poetic language and the eloquence there of the Psalms are some of our favorite books of the Old Testament, if not the entire Bible. In fact, the Psalms are so pivotal. Of the 150 Psalms we have, 129 of them make an appearance in some form or another in the New Testament. So this isn't just some ancient songbook that we can study of an ancient culture. This is the church's inheritance as well. Because we're commanded to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, it makes sense that the majority of the psalms themselves will find them, themselves in the New Testament, in the life of the Christian. So the goal this morning is to consider the book of Psalms as a gift, a tool, and a resource to the Christian life so that you can experience your emotions in a biblically wise way. What we're going to do then in the remainder of our time is just give an overview of the book of Psalms, or the Psalter as it's called. There are many Psalms. In fact, the Psalms is the largest book of the Bible. It has the most chapters within the Bible at 150. And it both contains the shortest chapter in the Bible and the longest chapter in the Bible. There's many great and unique features of the Psalter that we can explore. But what I want to do is just give a brief overview by way of the narrative structure, help us understand what's going on in the book of Psalms as a whole, understand the central message of the Psalter, and then consider some characteristics of the Psalter that can reflect in our own lives as Christians read, study, and then live in light of it. Now consider what's happening in the book of Psalms together. You may understand already that the book of Psalms is divided into five different smaller books. These are all centered around the storyline of David, King David. The first book goes from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41, and the second book goes from Psalm 42 to Psalm 72. And these two books are primarily written by David himself. What probably began as an exercise of spiritual discipline or a way to chronicle or some sort of spiritual autobiography, David begins to write down his prayers and his songs and was collected into a way of understanding what God has done in his life. But David, of course, does not live forever. And by the end of the book, of the second book, and in the beginning of the third book in Psalm 73, we see that the psalm is written then by Solomon and others, and that the prayers of David, it says, are ended. And so these other psalmists, these other poets and songwriters, understanding the significance of David and the working in the history of God, and what David intends to do through this collection of songs given to his people, continues to draw up and explain further what God has been doing and has done and has promised to do through the life of his people, to lead and guide them in their worship and to give them this instinct of godliness. 
as they track through history. In the fourth book, from Psalm 90 to 106, we see this picture of the covenant, which seems to be falling into disrepute. And so just as Moses did in Exodus, we see an intercession by the song of Moses in Psalm 90 and others for the Davidic covenant, that God would keep his promises there. And then we get to the last book in book 5 from Psalm 107 all the way to the end, 150, about what the future Davidic king would be like as God sustains his promises. So this really traces the work of God through, ostensibly through the history and the life and the promises to David, but is really the promise of what God is doing for all of his people from the very beginning all the way to today. So we have five books in the Psalter centered around the storyline of David. But that doesn't mean that David is the central or most important character in the book of the Psalms. In fact, Yahweh is the most central character in the Psalms, of course, in the entire Bible. Though the majority of Psalms may be written by David, it does not mean he is the main character of those Psalms or the book itself. It is God. It is his words which are spoke. It is his works which are praised. It is his people. It is their prayers to this God. It is God's enemies. It is his Messiah and servant whom he sends. So the central thread in all of the Psalms is not any one particular human, but is God himself. His words, his works, his people, His enemies, His promises, His Messiah. God, Yahweh, is the central character. This covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who has brought His people through their circumstances is prayed to and is praised for what He has and is doing. So what's the central message of the entire book of Psalms? It's this, that God cares about the affairs of men, of all mankind, And he who trusts in God will be he who is blessed by God. God cares about the affairs of men, even the small details of man's life. And he who trusts in God will be blessed by God. The idea and the theme of blessing runs through the Psalter. And it is those who trust in God, who know him intimately, who pray to him and praise him, will be those who are blessed by him in due course. That's the central message of the Psalter. So as you read the book of Psalms in your own Christian faith, as you deep dive into his word, know that this is a book meant to guide you and instruct you on how God cares for and intends to continue caring for your life and keep his promises. It is the means by which he intends to bless his people because it gives you a way of living rooted in both God's wisdom and in God's covenant-keeping promises. So what we'll do for the remainder of our time now then is consider the characteristics of the Psalter with a particular eye to how Christians today reflect as they read the Psalms, they reflect those characteristics in their own life. Uh, I should know how many characteristics I have, but I don't, and I'm not going to flip seven pages to find out where it is. We're going to start with the first one. The first characteristic of the psalm is that it is honest. The psalms are honest. In fact, 
the bulk of the psalms in the Psalter are complaints. They're psalms of lament. Almost one-third of the entire book of Psalms is about a lament or a complaint to God because of how difficult the circumstances of the psalmist is. Consider Psalm 10, if you'd like. By the way, you can turn and follow along with me. It's going to be helpful to have your Bible open, or you can certainly listen and return to these later. But Psalm 10, just from the first 12 verses here, this is a psalm of lament. Listen to what the psalmist here says. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes of what they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. And in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. And all his thoughts are that there are no God. There is no God. His way prospers at all time. Your judgments are all in high, out of his sight. For all of his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and his hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Well, you can see in this psalm that this is a complaint to the Lord. Why, God? Why do you stand far away? The wicked are prospering. They're, they're oppressing and conquering the poor. They are murdering and pillaging. There is no fairness or justice. They seem to be unchecked. So the complaint is that God seems to be distant. And so the prayer around this complaint is that he would arise Oh God, lift up your hand against them. Forget not the afflicted. Or perhaps Psalm 74. In Psalm 74, there the psalmist again prays, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed from the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Verse 20. Have regard for the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God. Defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Again, in this psalm of complaint, this lament, we see here that the psalmist is brutally honest with the Lord. Now, in your prayers, perhaps, you do not quite approach God with the same sort of boldness. God, why are you so far away? Why are you allowing this to happen? And perhaps, in your case, that might be wise to be careful about how you accuse God of wrongdoing. But what's happening in the psalms is not an accusatory pointing the finger at God as if he sins. 
but a calling God to remember the covenant he has made. The Psalms, again, remember, are God's words inspired in the psalmist's heart that he would pray and sing to himself. So this is as much a reminder for himself to remember the God's faithfulness and promise to his covenant as much as it is a prayer that rhetorically asks God, has he forgotten his covenant? The answer, of course, is no, he has not, and will keep his faithfulness and his promise to the end. But we have this, in the Psalms, this honesty and audacity to pray to God when things seem unfair and unjust. Now, if you're like me, you may have this theological impulse to not pray such prayers because you immediately answer, of course God is just. You check the theological box and you don't allow yourself to go to God to speak to you in that emotion. And friends, I want to encourage you to read the Psalms of Lament and Complaint when things indeed seem unfair, when the wicked do seem to prosper, that you go and you recognize that this is not according to God's good and purposeful design, that the righteous are meant to prosper under God's hand and the wicked are meant to be destroyed. And yet when the opposite happens, it is right and proper for us to seem out of place. And yet if we pray to God without the honesty of the psalmist here, we shortchange the sense that we can grow in our understanding and our process of our own emotions. So trust that God is doing all that he says he will do and speak to God honestly. Friends, God can handle your bluntness. He is strong enough for you to put all your weight of doubt and misgivings about your circumstances or about the prosperity of the wicked. It does not scare him or frighten him. There is an answer there in his word. If you continue to read the Psalms of Lament and the complaints of God, you see that even within those Psalms, the answer is turned back on the psalmist. And God does not say, I know I've been slacking. He reminds the psalmist to consider the covenant that God made to consider God's own character, or even to go to church and remember that the way of the wicked indeed will end in their judgment, not in their prosperity. So the first characteristic of the Psalms that is to be reflected in the Christian life is one of honesty. The second characteristic of the Psalms is one of trusting God in all things. The psalmist trust God for who he is, what he's done, and what he will always do. A perfect example of this is Psalm 62. Just the first eight verses there, you can read along with me. There, Psalm 62, verses 1 through 8, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. The imagery, the language here of God as a refuge in a rock, a song which we have just sung reminds us that we can trust God despite the difficulties of circumstances. It goes on in verse 3. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall or a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down for his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, and I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. This is verse 8. Trust Him in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him, for God is a refuge for us. 
one of the things that we can learn from the Psalms is that despite how difficult things may be, yes, we can be honest in our prayers, but the result of such honest prayers must be that we trust God, that He is a refuge. Now, you trust in God, not in the way that you trust in simply a mathematical formula that is true because there's no other way it could be, but you trust in God based on how you know and understand God to be. You trust in God because He is God, because He has revealed His trustworthiness to you. You have the best example of His trustworthiness and the faithfulness of God in Christ Himself, that He has answered your prayers for help. He is your rock because Christ has become the rock of your salvation. From Psalm 131, a short psalm here, verse, three verses. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. In other words, you say, I'm not boasting to be prideful. Verse 2, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You see, the trust that the psalmists have is a way to engage our own emotions, to say whatever torrent of feelings you may have, from brutal honesty to depression and despair, the goal always is to move to deeper trust in God. God is a refuge a source of strength. He is our strong fortress. So the psalmists teach us to trust God. Many of our own circumstances are not as difficult or as bad as the psalmists were as they wrote. But sometimes they may be. The goal of the psalms as we read them over and over again is to give us this instinct to say, whatever the situation may be, I will trust God. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's the second characteristic. The Psalms are both honest and trusting. Thirdly, the Psalms are doxological, meaning that they are meant to give a, a language to praise. They're meant to help you worship God. And we see this in two ways, both in Psalms of Thanksgiving and hymns of praise within the Psalms. So go to Psalm 145. Consider how the psalmist praises God as a kind of worship. Here we see this as a corporate example. In Psalm 145, it says that I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. So you are praising God for who He is. It says in verse 4, One generation shall commend all your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds they shall, and I shall declare your greatness and they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The goal here is to remind yourself that God is worthy to be trusted because He is a great glorious God. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is the character of God himself, we praise. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. And on and on, the psalm of praise goes for who God is. You are led to pray to God in the honest situation and circumstances of your life. 
leading you to trust in God, not because he has given you some formula to believe, but because God himself is good. We can praise God, which leads us to greater trust. It says in verse 21 of Psalm 145 that my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all the flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Or Psalm 149, just a few chapters later, verses 1 through 5, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and with lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy in their beds. This is a psalm of praise meant to strike to the heart of those who have tasted and seen and know that the Lord is good. It's to resonate with the Christian that says, I can sing, I can praise, because of, despite my circumstances, the Lord is glorious, merciful, abounds in steadfast love. How else can the Psalms remind us in Psalm 84 to say, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for the joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So the Psalms lead us to praise God. But they also lead us to give thanks to God. Now, praising and thanking often go hand in hand, but they are two distinct aspects of our worship. We praise God for who He is, the generous gift giver. But we give thanks to God for what He has done for us. We can point to different examples in our life and in the history of the church for which we must give thanks to God, which leads us to praise, which leads us to trust, which deepens our affection and our prayers. In Psalm 34, for instance, we have a prayer of thanksgiving. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Why do we praise God? Why do we thank him? Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, all you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So you can give thanks to the Lord for what he has indeed given you. And those who seek the Lord will not lack, but he gives all that is necessary to sustain So in praise and in thanksgiving, we come to worship God. So one characteristic of the Psalms that can help us as Christians is to worship God both in our honesty and in our trusting, but also in our ability to praise and give thanks for all things. But the Psalms also instruct us. There are Psalms that are instructive in wisdom and in counsel. For instance, just turn to the first Psalm, Psalm 1. 
and see that the instruction, which really sets the pattern of all the Psalms, is this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and does, its leaf does not wither, and all that it does he prospers. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." The instruction here of wisdom is that you must give yourself to the blessedness of the God's word, that those who walk with the Lord and not with the wicked are those who will perish. This is the instructive wisdom of God. Psalm 78 gives the same example. In the first four verses we read, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from a bold. The things we have seen and heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our, grand, our, our children, but tell them to the coming generation. The glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. And Psalm 78 goes on to rehearse all of those wondrous and mighty deeds of God. But this psalm here is given as a source of wisdom and instruction. It's to be sung and taught from one generation to the next. It is a source of wisdom for God's people. This, of course, leads us to know those of whom Jesus, or those of the psalmist of who Jesus is really speaking. In Matthew 13, it says that all these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable, which was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And here he closes, I, quotes, I will open my mouth in parables and utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So what is perfectly fulfilled in Christ is here shadowed and set forth in the Psalms for us to emulate, that we may receive wisdom and instruction. Another characteristic of the Psalter is that it is historical, meaning that it looks back and celebrates what God has done. In Psalm 136, we see this repetition of the Lord's goodness for what He has done. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his love steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him alone who does great wonders, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, his steadfast love endures forever. Who made the lights, the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and the stars to rule over the night, his steadfast love endures forever over and over and over again, even rehearsing the history of Israel, who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, who brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and outstretched arm, who divided the Red Sea in two, who made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, to him who led his people to the wilderness, his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, it says in verse 26, for his steadfast love endures forever. Friends, it is good and right and proper for us to rehearse the goodness of God in our lives. This informs our prayer, deepens our faith, leads us to praise, strengthens our trust, and encourages our faith. The Psalms are historical in that they teach us to look back and celebrate. In the Old Testament, God instructs His people often to erect stones or Ebenezer so that they would remember and teach their children. Well, songs are the same way that we can pass on information to our children. It's one of the reasons that we sing songs that are old here, 
From generation to generation, we are able to explain and exclaim the same truths that our fathers and their fathers sang and believed. But not only do the Psalms look backwards, but they also look forward. They are prophetic. The Psalms are prophetic. And here we see different kinds of Psalms, like the royal Psalms that address the king, and these so-called messianic Psalms, which teach us to look forward to God's coming Messiah, his future king. And Psalm 2 is a perfect example of this as well. So the psalmist there asks, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, against, Let us burst their bonds apart and let us cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He then will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now therefore, verse 10, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This looks forward to this future king that God has anointed and set to rule over his people that no enemy and no nation will ever fully come against and have victory over. It is the future king. Here David writes of this, the future king, which at one point speaks to the reality of David's kingship, but ultimately to the promise made to David that a greater and an everlasting king and kingdom will rule over God's people. So it looks both backwards and forward as it leads us to consider Christ, who is for us the greatest king, who is the ruler over God's people. We are commanded to kiss the Son, to obey and submit to Him, that in this King we seek and find refuge. So Christians, we must read the Psalms and consider how they lead us to Christ. These royal and messianic pictures are to give us a glimpse into how God has promised and fulfilled His picture, uh, His, His promises of reality in heavens and earth in the future. So several of these characteristics are meant to be reflected in the Christian life. There are several themes woven throughout these psalms. First is a theme of God's good word, namely His law and His covenant promises. Read Psalm 119 when you have about 30 minutes to do so. It is all about extolling the promises and the beauty and the blessings of God's word. Another theme we see in the psalms is that God will ultimately vindicate the righteous and judge the wicked. Psalm 73 is one of my favorites of all time, that His Consideration of the wicked's prospering leads him to almost doubt God, but he is reminded by considering God in the sanctuary that their end is near. But ultimately, the theme of God's word here in the Psalms is that the blessedness of God's people will be ruled by God's King Himself. Just as Psalm 2 pointed us to, Psalm 110, the most quoted Psalm in the Bible, in the New Testament, is this that the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter to rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in your holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He says you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment from among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way 
Therefore, he will lift up his head. This great and coming Davidic king, here referenced by David himself, speaks to this greater triumph of the king of kings. And so this is the blessedness of those who take refuge under the kingship of Christ. So how are we then to use the Psalms in light of this? There are many more characteristics and aspects of the Psalms which we have not even begun to address. I want to just give you three ways that you can begin to use and think about the Psalms in your own Bible reading and as your faith is grown. First is that you are to use the Psalms to humanize the Bible. And by that I don't mean that you take God's inerrancy and inspiration from the Bible, but that you allow the human picture of the Bible to come front and center. Because what you read in the Psalms is how God's majesty collides with humanity's mess. And what this does is when you read the problems going on in the heart of David or of Solomon or these other psalmists, when you see the songs of lament and complaint, of distress, of hopelessness or despair, you can see that God enters into the mess of the human situation and he speaks directly to us. In other words, what we mean by this is that the Psalms can help clarify covenant membership with God. That those who are members of God's covenant, those who have been rescued by God and brought into the household of faith, the Psalms show us what that, that relationship looks like. It clarifies the human aspect of the membership as we trust God in His keeping in that covenant for all time. So the first way to use the Psalms, friends, is to read it and see the human element in it. But these are written indeed by humans in the midst of their troubles and their tragedies. And God speaks to them and he speaks to us that those who seek God and are in the covenant with him will be kept secure. The second way to use the Psalms is to allow it to develop among you what I would call an interpretive culture. In other words, it's going to shape your attitudes, inform your worldview, and to ground your hope in that covenant membership. In other ways, you are to look at the Psalms and say, this is the way those who are in the covenant must act. These are the right desires to have. Even the questions that may be raised about God's nearness or His timing are good and right questions when offered in faith. So if humanizing the Bible and reading it as God's majesty colliding with humans' messiness, reading the culture... Reading the interpretive culture of the Psalms validates that covenant membership, which shows us that those who are in relationship with God can and should have the same desires, panting after God's house, His majesty, His joy, desiring to see His works done, praising God for who He is. You can look at the Psalms as a mirror of your own life and see, do I make these same choices? Do I seek the same desires? Have I given myself to the same Patterns and attitudes of grace, humility, and of praise. So when you think of, do I lament? Do I praise? Do I give thanks? Do I trust the way the psalmists do? Allow the psalms to give you the shape of the attitude and worldview so that your hope is grounded. Allow it to validate your covenant membership as you pray along the same lines. But lastly, friends, use the psalms to deepen your worship. Use the psalms to deepen your worship. The songs at the end of the day were meant to be sung. They are prayers meant to be prayed. And as you sing and pray these songs and you read them, you are nailing down the truth of the gospel. All of the things that are informed from the New Testament, 
The Psalms are like the nails that drive this deeper into the core of your soul. So if humanizing the Bible, reading the Bible from its human perspective and seeing the disparity going on between God's relationship and man's perspective, if you allow the Psalms to shape and validate the covenant membership there, we see that deepening the worship by singing, praying, and reading the Psalms strengthens the covenant membership because it reminds you that God is indeed involved in your life, that he hasn't set the world on its end like a spinning top and waits for it to end. He has not left you to your own devices. He has given you not just the Psalms, but the entire book of his revelation so that you can know that he is with you, that he has given you his spirit to strengthen you, and that you may walk in hope. The gospel is true because the Psalms give us a clear picture of the validating and the clarifying hope of those who trust in the king will be blessed, but those who rebel against them will face the judgment of the wicked. Use the Psalms as a means to this end, as a tool and a resource for your worship, for your worldview, for your hope, and for your trust. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. There's more that we can say, so much more we can say about the Psalms. I trust that this overview was sufficient to begin to stir our affections and appreciation for what you've given us in the Psalms. God, may it be a vital source of, of trust and hope for us that we may find indeed a psalm for every sigh of our soul and that we can read it diligently and be affected by it as it teaches us what it means to have an instinct of godliness both in our lamenting and complaints but also in our praising and our thanksgiving our cries of victory and in our cries of pain Lord we ask that you would guide us give us the lens by which we can read and see Christ in them but above all help us to worship and love he to whom the Psalms point, the good, great, and future Davidic king, Christ himself, who is now at the right hand of the Father, whose enemies are indeed his footstool, who does rule over God's people, who is our king. We love you as always and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundation.com. Just to trust his cleansing blood.